0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. We're calling the sermon series, Come and See, that you may believe and have life in Jesus. The reason uh, we're calling the series, Come and See, is because the Gospel of John just keeps repeatedly inviting us, John just inviting us to come and look upon Jesus for all that he truly is and to marvel at him and to have our affections stirred towards him and ultimately to trust him, to trust him, to, to rest assured in his character and his saving work, which in the gospel find its, finds its greatest point, its pinnacle at the cross. Today is no different as we enter into John chapter 5, we'll see Jesus once again in His sovereign mercy and grace and miraculous power just incredibly working and, and interrupting the world as we know it. Um, and as we move deeper into John's gospel, Jesus' identity and true mission is going to be revealed more and more and His miracles are going to get bigger and bolder, but we're also now going to begin to see that the opposition to Jesus is going to grow stronger and stronger as well. This this week kind of marks that moment of of interrogation of Jesus leading all the way up to the cross. That begins in chapter 5 here. There will be those who fall in love as they see Jesus, as Jesus interrupts their life in a sense. There will be those who fall in love with Jesus and then there will be those who see the exact same thing, the exact same miracles, hear the exact same words, yet fall into deeper and deeper hatred of Jesus. It's a very sad thing. It's a very sad thing. Much like John chapter 4, which we, we just got done with three weeks in John chapter 4, John 5 is a large passage. We have some of those in the Gospel of John, some large passages that go together And so what we've done to just help us take it in is we've broken it up into a few weeks, just like we did John chapter 3. And so today, we will be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and we will hone in on seeing Jesus as he heals this man who's been lame for 38 years. Let's pray, and then we'll read the word. Lord, we, we confess, we come as weak people, We come as distracted people. And we come, though little sheep, precious in your sight, prone to wander. But Lord, we thank you that any effort to cling to you is only brought about by your great grace of clinging to us. And we are so glad. Lord, as we come to your word now, as we've sung of the marvelous work of who you are and what you've done, oh Lord, would you just now allow us to see it even more as we open up the Word of God, Your word, to us. Lord, not given so that we can inspect it solely as on a knowledge level, Lord, to pick it apart as if we're sort of just excavating and, and just 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 kind of laboring through it no lord you want us to find you here you give us your word so that we know you better and that we respond appropriately to you and so lord as we open your word as we read it as we unpack it lord would we would would you do that very thing Would the spirit of god would your spirit at work in your people reveal to us our marvelous christ and may our hearts respond appropriately with assurance and joy and gladness. Be exalted, Lord. Lord, I confess that this is a passage with many debates, so many things debatable about it, Lord, even just in, 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 among the church, among the, the church at large has debated so much of it. Lord, I just pray you would help us sift through that and get to you. May that be so. Do your good work in our hearts. May you be exalted and may your church be built. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, Amen. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This passage of scripture is a well-known passage of scripture, but something we need to know is that not only is this passage well-known, there is so much in it that is widely debated. So I'm going to seek to be as faithful as I can be. As just a simple, I tell you this all the time, I'm a simple Pastor. So I'm going to do the best I can to handle the Word of God as faithfully as I can and walk through this passage in a way that I think is aligned with the rest of the Gospel of John and is aligned with what we've already seen of Christ's character and what we will see later in the Gospel of Christ's character. So do the best I can. So quickly, I do think it's worth addressing. There, There are so many things debated. I mean, you could almost point to everything. It's a minefield People debate Jesus' tone. People debate the man's responses. People debate the pool and what, where it came from, what it's named. All, the, all, everything is debated. But I do think there's one thing to address quickly. I don't want it to be the main thing because I want Christ to be the main thing as we dig into this. But I want to get it out of the way and so that we can dig into this passage. In your Bibles, verse 4 is marked by an asterisk or That verse is even placed at the bottom of the page in the footnotes. This verse is debated on if it should actually be included, which is why it's marked the way it is. And the reason why is because the earliest manuscripts that we have that are compiled to help put together the Bibles that we have in our hands, this verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And it's debated that this verse may have been added later, in later manuscripts, to try to help make sense of what people believed was happening with this water at the pools of Bethesda. That this pool was, would bubble up every so often, and when it did, it was because an angel was actually stirring it up supernaturally, and the first person into the water of this bubbling water would be healed. It was the belief then. It's believed that that was a superstition of the people at the time, that it was actually just Waters being piped in, and as the bubbles would flow through it every once in a while, the people would try to jump in first, thinking that something supernatural was actually happening. R.C. Sproul, who many of us would, would love and trust, speaks on this in a way that I think is helpful. So I want to read this to you. It'll be up on the screen. What the church possesses are hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of copies of manuscripts that were made in the earliest days. Through the science of textual criticism, Scholars try to reconstruct what was in the original documents. Thanks to the great number of copies and the precision of textual criticism, we have a high degree of confidence that the biblical manuscripts as we now have them are very close to the originals. However, occasionally, we find manuscripts differing as to what is in the original text, and this is one of those instances. Some of the best texts of the Gospel of John Do not include verse 4. Therefore, it's very possible that this statement about an angel stirring up the water and healing the first person who stepped into the pool may have been a textual gloss that reflected more of the superstition of the people in and around the pool of Bethesda than the actual truth of God. Wherever we land in the debate, wherever we land in the debate, what we do know is that it doesn't change the outcome or implications of the main point of this passage. That's what we do know. People were trying to get into the water first because they believed that when it bubbled up, it could heal you. And Jesus has arrived on the scene. (laughs) And just like we saw in John chapter 4, when Jesus encountered a wayward woman at a water well, and he offers her a drink of his living water, and he gives her true life, Jesus now arrives at a place of utter brokenness and hopelessness where people are putting all their hope in this bubbling water to rescue them from their helpless state. And Jesus, the true and better wellspring of life, is going to rush upon this man like a tidal wave of mercy. That's what we know about this passage. So that's what I want us to fix our eyes upon. Our amazing and merciful and powerful Jesus. So with that said, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. As John sets the stage for us in verses 1 through 5, what we see first is the brokenness of our sin-fallen world. The brokenness of our sin-fallen world. Jesus has now arrived back in Jerusalem during a feast celebration. And so thousands of people would have been coming into the city to gather together to worship God. And we're taken to a pool located by what's called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was this entrance into the temple grounds for sheep that would have been provided for the people to have sacrificed on their behalf in the temple. And we're told that there is this pool by the gate. It's essentially two large pools of water surrounded by covered porches. There's all sorts of speculation about this pool and that gate and Jesus being at this pool and that gate. And was, was this a place where sheep were once were, were clean before they walked through that gate? Was this and then he's the sheep, the Lamb of God entering this? We don't know. We don't know. I think I think there's a lot as, as I read, I probably on this passage just more widely studied as much as I possibly could, and it is just all over the place. So I want to stick with what we know. Pool's debated. But what we know, what's written here for us in the Gospel of John for us to see is that in this moment, in time, this pool is a sad place. That's what we know. This pool is an incredibly sad place. It's a visible and tangible reminder of the great fall of Genesis 3, isn't it? When sin devastated humanity, breaking us from sweet fellowship with God, breaking the beautiful image of that we were to reflect of our God permeating everything, even breaking bodies. Sin breaks bodies, doesn't it? This pool is a sad picture that we live in a sin-fallen world that isn't as it should be. That's what we're seeing here. We live in a sin-fallen world that isn't as it should be, and it's this place that just seems to be the ultimate place of helplessness and brokenness. Precious saints, though I do think in this passage we will see Jesus care for a man in his physical brokenness, and I think some, we would, mo- we would just want to hone in on that. I think there are camps of believers who would just hone in on that, and they just say, are you waiting by the pool, right? What pool are you waiting by? Are you waiting by the pool? Do you have faith Jesus is going to show up and just wait by the pool? Th- those types of things. I do think Jesus cares about this man and his physical brokenness. And we will see that. But I think there's something greater calling out to us that's being pictured here. More than the incredible vividness of, of physical brokenness that sin has brought about. I think it's pointing us and calling out to us the spiritual state we are in apart from the saving and restoring work of Jesus. Apart from Christ, we are are like the helpless and hopeless, just lying there, needing miraculous restoration, yet unable to find it anywhere in this world. Looking in all the wrong places, putting our faith in fallen things or in vain superstitions, when what we really needed all along was just Jesus Himself. We'll see physical restoration In this story by God's grace but in the end we'll see there is a greater need for spiritual restoration heart redemption here's what I love though and this is what the the word is showing us of Jesus whether it's either one Jesus is able to do it all praise God he's able to do it all whether it's physical restoration or spiritual restoration, heart redemption. Jesus is able to do it all, and He's concerned about it all. You can imagine the scene at this pool. A multitude of invalids, we're told. The blind, lame, paralyzed people lying around just waiting, unable to clean themselves, unable to find their way to a restroom, Who wants to be in that water next to that? Unable to go get food for themselves. Gathered around a pool of water. The only sense of hope they have is that when that water bubbles, i got to be the first one in. Imagine the anguish. An intensity of longing and waiting for the water to just bubble. And when it does, only to find, I can't even get there. I can't even get there first. No one's even here to help me get there. Among them, a man of 38 years, lame. What a picture of hopelessness. I think that's the call here. What a picture of vivid helplessness and hopelessness. No one to help. And what you're putting your hope in can't heal you. We, we have, precious saints, I, I did a lot of searching, a lot of studying. Jewish history, historians, all of that. I could find no historical records of anyone ever being healed at this pool. None. Jewish historians who have kept incredibly detailed accounts of Jewish history, and there is no account of a single healing happening at this place except the one Jesus is about to do. That's the one. People putting their hope in this place. If I just go there, if I can just get that, then I'll be, my life will be changed. Doesn't that same heart posture echo into, t- into today? I could just get that. If I, could, if I would just get there, if I just get to that point, if I would just have that, life would change as I know it. When really, what you need, truly, the greater need you have is you need Jesus. That's what you need. This pool's name, it just it blows me away. Even the pool's name was debated. I just, I'd like, this does not serve humble pastors just trying to be faithful. You know? Pool's name Bethesda, which I understand it to be house of mercy. People coming to try to find mercy. Finding mercy in this place, yet finding none. Just hopeless and helpless people with broken bodies in a sin broken world, longing for mercy. And here comes Jesus, full of mercy and grace. Verses 6 through 9, our second point, the sovereign mercy and grace of Jesus. We saw the sovereign mercy of grace of Jesus last week. And if you follow a trail, you're probably saying, we've kind of heard that every week, every week. But praise God, that's what the scripture is calling out to us. Look upon your Savior full of mercy and grace John wants us to take another glimpse at it this week, just like John 4 when Jesus left Jerusalem. Remember, in John 4 when he met the woman, the wayward woman at the water well, he didn't even have to be there. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem and he's going up to Galilee and he chooses to go through Samaria where no Jew wanted to go. No one would go there, but he needed to go there, it says. He needed to go there. He went there, a place where people didn't just wander off to, especially Jewish people. Jesus went to people in a place where no one wanted to go. He went to the outcast and rejected Samaritan woman and ultimately to Samaritan town nearby, the people who had been far off. These are the echoes of Scripture, the people who had been far off, outsiders to God's people and outsiders to God himself. And Jesus draws near to them in order to draw them near to God. Isn't that beautiful? To draw them, the Son of God, to draw them to the Father. Now, in similar fashion, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Most likely, headed to the temple, it's a feast celebration. I'm not going to speculate on which one that is. Everybody else has done that already. I'm not going to speculate which feast. Most likely, headed to the temple, stops at this pool. Doesn't need to. Doesn't have to stops at this place of sadness, this helpless and hopeless place. He stops at this pool and to mere understanding for us, mere worldlings, right? He definitely did not need to be at this pool just like he didn't need to be at that water well and meeting the wayward woman there. But here Jesus is and out of the multitude of hopeless and helpless souls, he looks upon this man knowing he had been there for a long time. I love scripture. Little verses like that. I think that's why I have such a hard time preaching shorter. <laughs> because those things just grab my heart. He knew this man. He knew this nobody. For 38 years, nobody can't benefit anyone in the world. Seems to be He is a weight to everybody else, a burden to everybody else. No one there even helping him. Who knows if this man had family? Who knows? But we know he's there by himself. No one to help him. Jesus knows him. He knows his his suffering. He knows how long it's been. This man has no clue who he is. Yet the God of the universe and human flesh knows this little nobody man laying by a pool. No clue who's standing before him. And yet Jesus, God the Son and human flesh who, who by him and through him and for him all things exist. And in him all things held together. The God of the universe has known him and is aware of his trouble aware that he has endured this for so long and has drawn near to him. Some, I fear, would see that And almost this heart posture. And I've heard this in other places of Scripture. I've heard and I've seen people. I've engaged people. I remember one young man, I mean, just talking with him. He was angry about this very type of thing. How could Jesus do something like that? All those other people, all the brokenness, and in just a moment, he could heal all of them. How could he? Precious saints, I remember appealing to this young man at a coffee shop. When we see ourselves rightly in the undeserving state we truly are in apart from Christ, when we see this happen, we don't respond, how could you not do that? Such a thing. Rather, we say, how could you choose that one man? How could you do such a marvelous thing? How amazing you are that you would even choose one out of the multitude who, have, who are lowly and poor and needy and helpless. How good you are that you would even no- notice one of them. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and repeat the same phrase. The heart that truly understands our helpless and lowly, estate, state apart from the sovereign mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus rejoices when we see things like this in the word, don't we? J.C. Ryle, I know I like to quote from him. I've probably quoted him so many times to you. I like what he has to say. J.C. Ryle lived in the 1800s, said this of this passage. How great is the mercy and compassion of Christ. Yes, it is. He saw the poor sufferer lying in the crowd, neglected, overlooked, and forgotten in the great multitude. He was observed by the all-seeing eye of Christ. He knew full well by his divine knowledge how long he had been in that case and pitied him. He spoke to him unexpectedly with words of gracious sympathy, This is just one among many examples of our Lord Jesus Christ's kindness and compassion. He is full of undeserved, unexpected, abounding love towards man. He delights in mercy. It's true, doesn't it? Beautiful. Precious saints, if you have known Christ, if you have known Christ, count yourself among the poor sufferers lying in the crowd, unable to save yourself, helpless and hopeless, and then among the many examples of our Lord Jesus Christ's kindness and compassion, count yourself as a recipient of His undeserved, unexpected, abounding love. It is because Jesus has taken notice of us in all of our helplessness and had sweet, merciful compassion upon us. Who are we that He would look upon us and take notice of us? Who are we, precious saints? Don't ever, don't ever stop celebrating this sweet mercy of your Savior. Don't ever stop. Don't ever move on. Don't ever think there's something greater to know. You know more things of your precious Savior. Indeed, know more things. But don't ever move on from these types of precious truths of our Savior. Because when we do, we grow proud. When we do, we grow unthankful. When we do, we stop being glad and happy saints in the Lord. And we start demanding. We stop being glad that we're just in a chair, in the room, among the people of Christ, counted as one of the people of Christ. And we start thinking, I'm pretty swell. Why doesn't anybody notice me in this room? Who cares if anyone notices you if you have been noticed by the most important one of the universe? Oh man, I have to preach that truth to my heart all the time. Precious saints, don't ever move on from celebrating the wonderful, sweet mercy and grace of our precious Savior. Out of the multitude, he looks upon this man who has zero to offer him in return and says, Do you want to be healed? Notice the man's response, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. You can see where he's aiming his faith. The water. The water, and I need someone to get me there. Get me there. I need someone to get me where I think there's healing. Where I think life will change as I know it. That water and someone to get me there. Something Jesus is asking this man, why why do you want to be healed? As if asking him, questioning his desire to be healed as if he's probing this man's heart of any desire, like, do you really want to still be healed? Lots of people would consider that of this question. As I just cut my grass this week and prayed, Lord Jesus, why did you ask that man this question? Why would you ask him that? It doesn't seem like you're asking him for that reason. Do you really want to be healed? Here's what I believe. I I, I think Jesus is doing here. I think he's asking in such a way as to make an offer. You don't need that bubbling water. You don't need someone to pick you up and carry you to that water. What you need is me. And I am standing in front of you. And so I'm asking you, do you want to be healed? That's what I think Jesus is asking as a precious, merciful offer to a man who is blind and helpless and whose faith is misplaced. Jesus looks upon this man who doesn't know him, who has been trying to reach for restoration in places he could never grasp. That's what he's doing. He's reaching for restoration in places he could never reach, that he could never grasp. So in a sense, this faith is misplaced, but Jesus is able to do what he is unable to do. And Jesus is full of mercy where He is receiving no mercy in the house of mercy. He gives this man that which He could never gain on His own. In verse 8, Jesus, the Word of God that spoke all creation into existence, who is the only one who has the power to restore that which is broken by the fall. Now at just the might of His spoken Word tells this man Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And in that very moment, this man's body and bones that had been lame for 38 long years in just a second. At the whisper or words of Jesus, just the very word of the word made flesh, Jesus reverses the irreversible. This man takes up his bed, And he walks. This man didn't need to be first in the water. He needed Jesus, the true and better wellspring of life, didn't he? It's true for each and every one of us. Whatever you think your greatest need is, whatever you think that might be, whatever restoration you think must take place in your life, the greatest restoration is between God and man. And the only one who can accomplish such a thing is Jesus himself. The only one who can truly bring about your greatest good for your greatest need is Jesus. Isn't that true, precious saints? You know that. So many of you know that. We affirm these truths in our homes together as we praise him. Jesus reverses the irreversible. He, he needed, this man needed Jesus to look mercifully upon him and to act graciously for him. And he found in Jesus the mercy that he could not find in the house of mercy. I love it. It's like, just have this picture, you know, he's, he's by this pool, but it's like Jesus comes and it's this tidal wave of mercy and refreshment and restoration that comes upon him. Isn't it so similar? I think, it's, I think John, he put these stories purposefully. Doesn't it echo the truths of the Samaritan woman at the water well? Same truths. Looking for satisfaction in the things of the world, unable to find it, only true place to find it, in Christ himself, living water, flowing. Looking for restoration, John chapter 5, looking for restoration in all the wrong places, can't find it, can't get it yourself, where, where must you look, sir? You must look to Jesus himself where true restoration is found, and a tidal wave of living water rushes upon you. Oh, I love it. I love it. We've seen in the Gospel of John how Jesus is the yes and amen to the Old Testament. What the Old Testament was looking forward to, that there would be this time when God would restore and renew and bring life in the desert places. And what have we been seeing over and over and over again? Jesus is the yes and amen to that call. Isaiah 35 He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And why? What has happened in the the world we, we cannot see? For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Jesus gives us a glimpse of the fulfillment of this passage on that day when that lame man leaped like a deer, grabbing his bed and going at this pool. The true pool, the better pool, the springs of life and water coming in the wilderness had overtaken that place. And we'll have a full and completed view of it when we see Jesus once again. All things made new. No more desert. You expect in seeing such a marvelous thing, a man for 38 years, lame. Imagine you walk by that guy. Imagine your way to work, you see that guy. We see that in our city, don't we? I've seen that in people driving down the street. You see the same folks. You see the same people. You know them. Maybe you've talked to them. Maybe you know their story year after year, and you're just thinking maybe this will be the year that that's not the case for them anymore under the bridge. Maybe this will be the year. This man, 38 long years. You expect the world around them to celebrate Who can do such a marvelous thing? Who is this Jesus? How has this happened? Surely God walks among us. Worship. Worship on this Sabbath. We have come to rest in the God of the universe on the the Sabbath day. Surely we can rest upon Him. He has arrived. Worship. That's what you expect to happen. But not here. Right. That doesn't happen here. John reminds us in verses 9-13 of the blindness of our sin-fallen world. The blindness of our sin-fallen world. Sin doesn't just break us, it blinds us. It blinds us. The Jewish religious leaders see this man who had been healed. Blows me away. Carrying his mat. And instead of celebration, they respond with interrogation. They tell this man that it was unlawful to carry his bed because it was the Sabbath, a day of rest for the normal work of of the world and to worship God. And we'll talk more about the Sabbath next Sunday. But these Jewish religious leaders were responding to a miracle of God almost as if they were blind to see it. As if it had never even happened. They instead give all of their attention to rule following. Blinded that they care more about man-made regulation than God-made restoration. The rabbinic tradition had put together 39 specific types of forbidden work that were then considered illegal to do on the Sabbath day. The very last rule, number 39, prohibited someone from carrying something from one domain to another. So as a result of this man-made rule, they see this man who was lame for 38 years, now carrying his mat, and instead of responding with praise to the God that they supposedly want to honor. Instead of this declaration of look and see, look what has happened, surely God is with us, surely we should worship. But they are concerned with his mat carrying, and who told him to carry his mat? How foolish are we when our hearts are blinded by sin? We could see God walking in the flesh right before us, healing and doing miraculous things, yet the human heart is so utterly deceitful and blind. You hear so many people, haven't we heard this? Maybe you've heard this. I've heard people say this. You hear so many people as you talk to them about Christ. If I just saw him, walking today, doing those things, I'd believe. I know I would follow him. I, I would believe. If I would just, could just see him doing that stuff today, I would just believe. That didn't happen in Jesus' day. And it would not happen today. Because apart from an enlivened heart by the power of God, we're blinded to seeing the goodness of God in the person and work of Jesus. And so if you see the goodness of God in the person and work of Jesus, it is because first, the eyes of your heart have been opened. I've shared this with you so many times. I love it when Paul talks about how, do, how have we known Him? Because the, the, the power of God at creation that said, let there be light and spoke all things into existence, has powerfully said that in our hearts to open our eyes to Him, to know Him like an explosion of grace within us to know God in the person and work of Jesus. Apart from that marvelous, merciful and gracious and powerful work, we are blind to the goodness of God in the person and work of Jesus, aren't we? From this point on, the opposition to Jesus and the interrogation of Jesus and his good works is going to greatly intensify by these men with blinded hearts. And we'll see those that who, who think they figured God out, who think they know God, yet apart from knowing Jesus, they are in reality so far from truly knowing God. We are going to see that over and over and over again. And it, it is heartbreaking. But I praise God. I praise the Lord. As we heard last week from Pastor Rob, all of, all of that opposition is not like throwing Jesus off of his mission. Jesus is going to use that to lead him to the cross to fulfill his ultimate mission. To rescue us eternally. Right? What a beautiful picture. You remember that? How the Lord Jesus, it's, it's pictured in the gospel itself how the Lord uses difficulty and opposition for His glory and for our good. It's pictured in the very cross of Christ. Lastly, lastly, we see in verse 14, the greater need we all have. The greater need we have, verse 14, later we're told that Jesus finds the man and He's in the temple. Men like this who had lame bodies, at, 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 when He had a lame body, were not permitted to serve in the temple as priests, Leviticus 21, and later there were some scenarios that happened in 2 Samuel where people then begin to interpret it as no lame person could worship in the temple. And so from that point on, that there was this opposition for, from the lame being in the temple or in the temple grounds. And so, so those who were lame truly were outcasts, truly were outcasts, as if separated from worshiping God with God's people. But now, what do we see of this man? Where is he? Where does he go? The temple? Now, made whole in Jesus, this man could enter into the presence of God and worship at the temple with the people of God. It's this greater work of restoration that we were talking about at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus cares for our greater need. Even greater than physical restoration is our spiritual restoration for those who are separated from God and His people to be brought near and worship. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when He tells the man, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We know by looking in the Scripture, that there are times as a result of committed sin, pain and calamity can come upon our lives. We do see that. There can be a commitment of sin, and there can be pain and calamity that comes about as fruit of that sin. But that doesn't mean that every time we endure some sort of trial or sickness, that it's because of personal sin. We'd be joining in with the friends of Job, if we begin to believe that all the time. You must have done something to God. That's not what we see in Scripture. We, we see a balance there. There are times it can be brought about, but that's not every single time. We see all throughout the Scripture, and even later in the Gospel of John, that the pain we go through is not always a direct result of some personal sin that we have committed. And some... Some have made a point to say, when Jesus told the man what he did, "Send no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, that this man must have had some sort of sin that brought this about, or that he better not sin, or he'll be stricken with worse. What I think Jesus is getting at is that for 38 long years, this man was separated from God and his people, unable to restore himself. Helpless, right? Helpless and hopeless. And as good as it is to walk again and now be able to gather in the temple, it means nothing if he goes on to live a life in unrepentant sin. He could be healed and then he begins to go give himself over to sinful things. It means nothing. Only to find himself facing eternal judgment of God. There's not a whole lot... Worse that I can think of 38 years lame, laying by a pool, helpless. But what I can think of as worse is the eternal judgment of God in the pool of the fires of hell as God pours out His wrath on you. That's much worse. And so whether you're healed, the greater need is turn from sin, friend. Don't take, don't presume upon the kindness of God. His kindness, it's Romans 2. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Turn away from sin. Don't be healed, crying out to God, and now you're healed and you're running towards sin. It means nothing at that point. Nothing. To be eternally receiving this wrath of God, separated from the people of God eternally. And from God's goodness, it would be a tragedy, actually. It would be a tragedy if this man is healed and yet still ruined by his sin with an eternity of no one to rescue you. Not just 38 years of no one coming to rescue you. An eternity of no rescue. It would be a tragedy, precious saints. Jesus knew What this man needed far more than a healed body is a redeemed heart, isn't it? Far more than a redeemed body, he needed a redeemed heart that loves God and flees from sin. This man's greatest need was to turn from his sin and live in the mercy and grace Jesus was bringing into the world and would be fully realized at the cross. In the end, we we see a Savior who does care about physical need. He noticed this man in his lowliness, in his need. He has known him. He does know us. I think sometimes in our camp, we can separate that. It's like the sovereign and holy God who doesn't care about you. He does care. But he cares so much that his care goes beyond our physical need into our eternal need because he knows this life here is but a little blip on the map of eternity. And he cares so greatly for his own that he looks into eternity for them. Praise God. Praise God. We see a a Savior who does care about physical need but cares most about our greatest need, our eternal restoration to God. Church, Those are easy things to say by a preacher. Those are easy things to stand up here and just declare. Church, I stand before you as a man with a broken body. And you know that. So many of you have prayed for me. You have been so gracious. You have been so patient in my limitations. I have days that feel like they crush me. And I'm weak. And my body hurts. And so I stand before you as not just a preacher tooting a horn. I stand before you as your brother in the faith, as another precious little sheep of God with a broken body whom Jesus has not chosen to heal. And should I turn and curse my Savior? No. I found out this week that my life with this broken body, is probably going to look more like a lifelong race for my family and endurance. And this passage brings me great comfort. That's why it just kills me. The the passage is so debated in so many things, so many topics, just debated, debated. And I'm reading it as a broken believer, a broken body, but you have faith in Christ. And I say, oh, I am so comforted by this passage. I think that's how we're to look at Scripture who is our great God that we see here and what does it mean for us? That our precious Savior is powerful to do whatever he wants to do should he choose to heal, he is able still. He is able at a whisper, the one who spoke all into existence. In a moment is able But above all, whether he heals or not, my and your greatest need has been taken care of when he went to the cross. That's the greatest need. When he took upon himself the wrath I did deserve, from the Father poured out upon Himself in my place, that by faith I may partake in His wonderful life and forgiveness, that I would be welcomed in by the bridge of the cross, welcomed into the family of God, brought near and restored to the people of God, but even more great and more grand, restored and brought near to God Himself through the cross of Christ. That is our greatest need. If Jesus chooses to heal, we can rejoice, but know that the greatest restorative work he has done for you was to pay for your sin at the cross. Amen? Amen. To restore you to God and to his people. And should he choose to heal you, be glad. I'll be the first one there clicking my heels and in tears celebrating God's grace and mercy upon your life. But rejoice even more that your name is written in heaven. And should he choose not to heal. Should he choose not to heal. Like the other hundreds of people that were at that pool. Take heart. Take heart. Our greatest need has been taken care of. At the cross. Take heart. You are counted among the saints by faith in Christ. You are counted among the people of Christ. Your sins have been paid for. You are forgiven. He has rescued you from your greatest grief and fear. Heaven is your home. Christ is your treasure. And He is our promise of true restoration and true wellness for eternity. So though in some ways... I can feel like one of the bodies left at the pool. But in a greater way, I know the restoration of Christ Jesus through the cross of Christ. And that is far greater. Amen. Let's pray.